listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Last week, I attended a small Bible study lesson titled, Living in the Light, a study on the book of 1 John. In the lesson, there was a question that asked, How do you know that God is your Father? The author of the book also asked if we are certain about our salvation and if we are sure that we are saved. She also stated that if you are not certain about your salvation, then you must look at where you are in your life right now. In other words, you must know who your father is. Is your father God or the devil? The question, who is your father, was so straightforward and to the point that I was a little thrown off, but it also made me think a lot about my life. How would all of you answer this question? Can all of you truly say that God is your father? Then how do you all know that God is your father? We will continue this discussion after the first song. of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. Yeah. 
commandments that Jesus taught us very well. First is to love our God, and the second is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. But as I read 1 John, I began to realize how I only knew in my head to love my neighbors as I would love myself. I failed to realize how important this commandment was to my life. I was not living my life knowing the importance and severity of this commandment. The reason why I use the word severity is that living your life following this commandment is critical to knowing who your father is. John the Baptist told the people in 1 John that there was a clear difference between the child of God and the child of the devil, and he goes on to explain the different characteristics of each. 1 John chapter 3 verse 10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The Bible tells us that the child of the devil has two distinct characteristics. They do not practice righteousness and do not love their brothers. If you put it another way, the child of God is someone that is righteous and loves their brothers. Let's now read verse 14 together. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. According to this verse, how do we know when we have passed through death and into life? Yes, through the love we have for our brothers. If I do not have love for my brothers in my life, 
then where would my life remain? My life would remain in death. But verse 15 tells us something even more shocking. It says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. To have hatred for someone is to have a severe problem in our lives. If we do not love our brothers, we are considered murderers and we will not have eternal life. We are not able to have salvation. I became seriously concerned as I continued to read through the verses. It hit me not when I saw the words hating your brothers, but when I saw the words not loving your brothers. I began to make excuses for myself. I began to think, what if I didn't hate my brothers, but just didn't love them fully? Isn't there somewhere in the middle? What if I just didn't have an interest in their lives? What if I just didn't want to have any type of relationship with them? I began to make excuses that this doesn't really mean that I have hatred towards them. But verse 17 in the Bible explains to us, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? According to this passage, if I saw one of my brothers depressed or in trouble and did nothing to help or had no interest in his life, it means that I have hatred towards him or no feelings toward him at all. It means that I do not love my brother. It means that I do not have the love of God inside me. It means that I do not belong to God. He cries in the corner where nobody sees He's the kid with the story no one would believe He prays every night Dear God, won't you please Could you send someone here who will love me? Who
Next is sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is the centrality of gospel based on Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. The scripture this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, he appeared. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might, I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I, I no longer live, but Christ Jesus in me. The life I now live in the body, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. This morning is talk not just about what the gospel is, but its centrality, which is a very, very important, if maybe, maybe the core of Redeemer's ministry, as I'm going to show you, uh, is to show people not just what the gospel is, but how it should function in their life. So let's take a look at this uh, famous passage from Galatians. Let's look at the heart of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, and then the power of the gospel. The heart of it, the centrality of it, and the power of it. Now, the heart of it is probably here in verses 15 and 16. Uh, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, what we have here is the reversal of the normal order that you find in religion. Justified means to be right with God. Well, how do you get right with God? Ordinarily, it's through the works of the law. That is, in every religion, you've got divine law that you must do. You've also got ceremonial observances that you must do, which we're going to be talking about here in a minute. Uh, that was also the case in Judaism. There were ceremonial observances. There, was, uh, um, there, was, uh, there certainly was divine law. And, uh, and yet Paul comes along and says, here's the gospel. The gospel is that you're put right with God, but not through the works of the law not through those observances. It doesn't mean that Christians who believe the gospel say, oh, the law doesn't matter. We can live any way we want because as we saw down here in verse, uh, you know, down here in verse 17, I don't promote sin, Paul says. We're not here to promote sin. Yes, of course, Christians should obey the law of God. But what's the order? See, in verse 12, there's a mention of the circumcision group. Peter, and we'll get to him in a minute, Peter was intimidated by, verse 12, the circumcision group. And if you read the entire book of Galatians, you'll come to see that the circumcision group was not probably who you think. The circumcision group was a group of of Jewish uh, men and, and teachers, but they believed in Christianity. That is to say, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. They said, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, right? They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. He died on the cross. They believed that. So you say, okay, fine. But then they said, however, you also have to observe the law, all the Mosaic Code, all, you have to be circumcised, you have to, you have to eat the dietary laws, you have to do all this stuff, and then you'll be saved. So what they said was believe in Jesus Christ and, you, and obey the law, and then you'll be saved. And that was the crux. That was the crucial thing. It was a battle of orders, J. Gresham Machen, who wrote a commentary on the book of Galatians, or at least a set of notes on the book of Galatians many, many years ago, uh, brought it all together very nicely when he said this. He says, the central point at issue between Paul and this circumcision group are these teachers. The central point at issue between Paul and these teachers concerned an order of three steps. The teachers said, one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and two, keep the law of God, the best you can, and then three, you will be saved. But Paul said, one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, two, at that moment, you are saved, and number three, then you proceed to keep the law of God. That was the order. 
do you obey in order to be saved or are you saved and therefore you obey? Or put it like this, do you say, I obey so I will be loved and accepted by God? Or do you say, I'm already loved and accepted by God in Jesus Christ and therefore I obey? Those are the two orders. There's the more religious, traditional religious order, I obey and therefore I'm accepted. And then there's the gospel order, I'm accepted in Jesus Christ and therefore I obey. Let me show you that we're talking about two different planets, two different worlds, two different orders. Because inside those two orders, you both have obedience, right? Obedience to God. But the obedience is radically different. Because if you obey God in order to be accepted, get blessed, then first of all, your obedience is anxious because you never know if it's enough. You never know whether you're obeying enough. And it's selfish. It's not only anxious, it's selfish. Why? Well, why are you doing it? Why are you doing the obedience? Why why are you giving to the poor? Why are you exercising self-control? Why are you reading the Bible? Why are you obeying God? You're obeying God to get something. You're doing all these things for other people to get something. So your obedience is anxious, it's selfish, it's a burden, it's joyless. Oh, but what if you obey because you've already gotten everything in him as a gift. What if you've already gotten love, intimacy, guaranteed future with him? What if you've already gotten acceptance? What if you've already gotten everything? Then why would you obey? You would obey for a totally different reason and in a totally different way. It would not be filled with anxiety. It would be filled with joy. The motivation would be joy. The motivation is not an empty heart and I need to do something to fill it with blessing. It's, it's a full heart. And now if I do obey God, if I do, when I do obey God, when I do do all the things he wants me to do, I'm doing it for God's sake. I'm loving my neighbor for my neighbor's sake, not for my sake. It's radically and completely different. Your motivations are different. The experience of it is different, totally different. Now, here's a message. And this is, I I say this with no joy at all. The message is that not only other people in in other religions, but also probably most people in the world who go to church are like the circumcision group. They say, yeah, you believe in Jesus and you work hard to obey the laws as best you can and then you can be saved and accepted. That's where most people are, which means they do not know. They don't know real obedience. They don't know obedience for God's sake. They only know obedience for their sake. They don't know obedience out of a full heart. They only know obedience out of an empty heart. They don't know obedience fueled by joy and love. They only know an obedience filled with anxiety. And as a result, they don't know what Paul's talking about. They don't know this way of obeying God. Instead, they're always anxious. They're always, they, always, uh, they have to look down at other people to shore up their, their sense of self-righteousness, which, they don't, which is not always what they, they know. It's never what it ought to be. They're very touchy to criticism. They're joyless. They find it a burden. His, they're always fighting about true, what, who's got the right doctrine and who's living the right way. In other words, you know, listen, two different people sitting in, a, in the seats on a Sunday morning right next to each other. One operating out of one order, one operating out of the other order. They both are doing a lot of the same things. They're both in church. They're both saying their prayers. They're both reading their Bible. But they're doing them for utterly and radically different reasons. And as a result, the effects in their life are radically different too. 
Not love, joy, peace, patience. Anxiety, bitterness, burden, boredom, anger toward other people. They're sitting together. Do you understand the difference between the two orders? They're radical. They're astonishing. And this is, this is what it's all about. Now, what this means is simply this. The gospel, we, I, this is a, it's a recap here. The gospel, we've said this over the last few years, after the last three weeks, uh, the gospel is that when you become a Christian and you put your faith in Christ, it says down here in verse 20, you're crucified with Christ. Listen for 60 seconds. What does that mean? The Bible also says you're raised with Christ. What does that mean? It means when you become a Christian, when you believe in, in, in Jesus Christ, you're united to him. That is to say, God, first of all, sees you as free from condemnation as if you had died on the cross for your sins. Your sins are paid for. There's another way to look at it. Not only has Christ gotten your sins, but you get Christ's righteousness. You're in him. That means that on the one hand, God has treated Jesus Christ on the cross as if he'd done everything you have done. At the same time, when you believe in him, he now treats you as if you have done everything he has done. All the honor, all the glory that he deserves, as it were, it's like his medals are pinned to your chest. And now you live knowing that he honors you like that. Do you understand the difference between these two orders? Martin Luther, who was a monk, and even though he was a very good man and he tried very hard to live according to the law of God, he knew he didn't love God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He knew he didn't love his neighbor as himself. He knew that. And when he was studying the book of Romans because he had to teach it, he was a monk, he had to teach it, he got to a place, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. It's the power of God unto salvation. And then he says, Paul, in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God, a righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. And Martin Luther struggled terribly with that because he thought the gospel was the revelation of the righteousness of God. But he says, my goodness, because I am a sinner, because I don't live up, how in the world could the gospel be good news? And this is what he writes about how he wrestled and struggled and what happened to him. He said, I tried to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that the righteousness of God in the gospel was that justice whereby God punishes the unjust. And my situation was, I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Night and day I pondered, and then I saw that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through sheer grace and mercy, God gives us. See, he thought that Christianity was about creating a righteous record and giving it to God, who then rewards you. But suddenly he recognized that Christianity is about a perfect record of righteousness that God creates for us and he gives to us. And this is what he said. When he realized that, when he realized the two orders, he said, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. When I discovered the distinction, namely that the law is one thing and the gospel is another, I broke through. When he realized the difference between the two orders, he broke through. Question, have you broken through? 
Have you broken through? Do you understand the difference in the two orders? I tell you, virtually everybody I've ever met in my life has got to break through from the one order to the other order. From the idea that righteousness is a record you give to God versus, no, 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 in the gospel, through Jesus Christ, God creates a, a righteous record and gives it to you. They create two totally different kinds of lives. And I don't know of anybody, very few people, who have ever really just grown up always understanding the gospel. Virtually all of us have got to find ourselves, we're living in that one order and we have to break through. Have you broken through? When you realize the, God, the law is one thing and the gospel is another. So there's the heart of the gospel. But how does it work in your life? How is it supposed to function in your life? And that's what the early verses tell us and what has been basically at the core of the ministry of Redeemer for many decades, and I hope for many decades in the future. Here's what it says, verse 11 to 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Other Jews joined him in in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Okay, we need some backstory, don't we? Yes, we do. (laughs) Well, um, obviously, Cephas is Jewish, and what the Jews had, uh, uh, had practiced for centuries was what we today would call the ceremonial law. That is to say that when uh, uh, at Mount Sinai, uh, Moses constituted the people of God and gave them the book of uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on. And, and there were two aspects to the Old Testament worship of God. There's two ways that the Israelites worshiped God. One was the ceremonial law. There are all sorts of, we also call them the clean laws. There are all sorts of things they could not eat. There are all sorts of uh, clothing they couldn't wear. But there were lots and lots of things they couldn't touch. So they couldn't, t- believe, they couldn't touch mildew, for example. They couldn't uh, touch a dead body. Uh, they had to stay ceremonially clean or they couldn't go into worship on the Sabbath. So if they'd done this or done this or they'd eaten this or touched this, they couldn't go into worship on the Sabbath. They were unclean. So they had to work very, very hard to keep themselves ceremonially clean. And, by the way, uh, the Gentiles, of course, around them, didn't eat those, the, right, the proper things. They, did, they, they touched things they shouldn't have touched. They ate things they shouldn't have eaten. And as a result, all Gentiles were unclean. And the Jews began to feel like, well, we're the clean ones. You're the unclean ones. But the other aspect of the Old Testament worship was not just the clean laws, but the sacrifices. Animal sacrifices, their blood was spilled in order to atone for their sin, which was God's way of saying, no matter how hard you try to keep yourself clean, no matter how hard you try to make yourself holy so that you can go into a holy God, you never will. And therefore, there's going to have to be atonement for your sin. You're never going to be good enough atonement for your sin. And now Jesus comes along. And when Jesus comes as the Lord and Savior, here's what he says. Number one, you don't need to do animal sacrifices anymore because they were all pointing to me. There's another sense in which Jesus fulfills all the sacrifices. So Christian believers don't do sacrifices. But then he also said the ceremonial laws... They all pointed to me. Only in me can you be clean and acceptable going into God. So I fulfill not only the sacrifices, but the ceremonial law, the clean laws. So Christian believers do not follow the clean laws, and they don't do animal sacrifice anymore. Why? Because Jew, Gentile, whoever, you're all unclean. 
You're all sinful, equally sinful, but in Jesus Christ, you, you can be, there's no condemnation. You are equally clean and acceptable. Now, the, the, the disciples, the 12 apostles, they were Jews, and it was extraordinarily radical and difficult to hear this, but Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 and other, a number of other places, Jesus said to them that uh, in, in me you are clean, and therefore they don't have to follow the, all the dietary laws. But it was difficult. All their lives the Jews had understood, we're the clean ones, they're the unclean ones, and so it was very difficult for them to eat with unclean Gentiles. And so in spite of the fact that Peter had heard this from Jesus' own lips, this teaching, nevertheless, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, God had to send, this is after Jesus had gone to heaven, God had to send Peter, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, a massive, vivid vision to say, Peter, you have to eat with the Gentiles. There's no racial divisions now in the gospel. You're all equally sinful. You're all equally right in Christ. And therefore, you must eat with the Gentiles. And that's the reason why it says in verse 12 that he did eat with the Gentiles. Peter did get through. He broke through, as it were. But then something happened. Uh, This circumcision group that said, not only do you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to abide by the whole Mosaic law, they came, and Peter was intimidated by them. And he and other Jews went, the Jewish Christians stopped eating with the Gentile Christians. And they went back into that uh, attitude of racial superiority and exclusivity. Now, what does Paul do when he sees it? Verse 14. When I saw they were not acting in line with the gospel, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. No, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, Peter, you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel. Dear friends, this verse was a paradigm shift for me many years ago, and I hope it'll be a paradigm shift for you too. Because this verse, this verse is teaching us two massive things about the breadth of the gospel and the depth of the gospel. The breadth and the depth. Number one, the breadth. Put it like this. People tend to think of the gospel as the first principles, the, the, the elementary principles. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, the gospel, sure. Jesus died for your sins, you have to believe in him. Okay, what's the big deal? The, the gospel are the kind of elementary, basic principles of Christianity. See, there are some beliefs that are beliefs, but then there are some foundational beliefs that we call worldview. And a worldview is, so, is, a, is a foundational belief you don't just see, but you see everything else through those beliefs. Those beliefs affect the way you look at everything else. Well, the gospel's like that. Because what Paul is trying to say is, see the breadth of the gospel. The gospel puts out lines. There's lines out of the gospel, implications of the gospel, which is so radical. And it affects the way everything should happen in your life. It puts out lines and says, walk in line. So put it like this. Is the way you do your work and conduct your career in line with the gospel has been shaped by the gospel? Is uh, the way you spend your money in line with the gospel? Is your sexuality in line with the gospel? Are your relationships and your family in line with the gospel? Have you thought out the implications, the truth of the gospel? Has it worked itself out? You see, the breadth of the gospel goes everywhere. It's not just like uh, something for, you know, it's not like the first two or three steps in and now we go on to something else. 
Have you thought about, is your attitude toward the poor and needy in line with the gospel? We have hope for New York to help you with that. So first of all, the gospel affects absolutely everything. There's the breadth of the gospel. It's not the ABCs of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z. It goes all the way out. It, it affects absolutely every part of your life. But the second implication of this is not just the breadth of the gospel, the depth. Notice that Paul does not say to Peter, though he could have, Peter, you're disobeying the no racism rule. Now, the Bible's filled with rules that say racism's bad. We're not going to go into that right here. There's all kinds of places in the Bible where God condemns racism. And so what Paul could have done to Peter is he could have gone after his will. He could have put pressure on his will by simply saying, Peter, you must stop being a racist. Here's what the Bible says. Racism is wrong. Now you must stop being a racist. But he doesn't do that, even though he could have. And even though he certainly wants Peter to stop being a racist. He wants him to change his behavior. Of course he does. But he doesn't just go after his behavior. When he says you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel, what he means is, I'm going after your heart, Peter. You say you believe the gospel, but it actually hasn't affected your heart. What does that mean? How? Well, you know, this word justification, please don't see it just as a theological term only. Now, if, if Paul comes to Peter and just says, stop, stop trying to justify yourself through, your, those, through racial superiority and, and exclusivity, then here's what's going to happen. Either Peter will be publicly shamed and he'll stop it for a while, but he'll go right back to it because his heart needs that. Or what will happen is he may go find something else. But what do they need? What do you need? If you're really going to stop looking to things to be your justification, you need the gospel. The gospel is unique. The gospel is the only form of worth, worthiness, and value that is not earned and achieved. It's received. It doesn't go up and down based on the performance of the last week. It's something that is not based on your record. It's based on his record and on Jesus' record. And therefore, unlike any other form of personal identity, the gospel is the end of your desperate hunt to matter, to, to find value and worthiness. He says the enduring hunt, no, not for, not for people who understand the gospel. It's enduring. No, it's not. Not for you. Do you believe the gospel? Not for you. Rejoice in the gospel. Think about the gospel. Worship and sing about the gospel. Pray it into your heart until you're released from these things. You know, Martin Luther wrote a commentary in the book of Galatians, and this is what he says about Galatians 14, where Paul comes and says, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. <laughs> this is what Martin Luther says about this verse. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. And that includes your head. You need to beat it in your head continually. You will never change your heart through moral reformation. You will never change your heart simply by getting, finding the biblical principles and going home and trying to apply them. All the change that your heart needs, all the change that your life needs is through praying, worshiping, rejoicing in what Jesus Christ has done for you, thinking the implications of the gospel out, not just broadly into every area of your life, but profoundly into the depths of your being. Now, last, let me just say something about the power. 
At the very end here, it says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself to me, for me. Do you see the deliberate paradox here? He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So it sounds like he's saying, wait a minute, okay, I don't live, Christ lives. But then he says, and the life I now live. Wait a minute, that's the contradiction? No. There's a sense in which when you become a Christian, you go into Christ, you disappear. When God looks at you, doesn't see you in your sin, sees you in the beauty of Jesus. There's a certain sense in which your life is hid with him. No longer do you look at anything else out there and say, if I have that, now I'll feel worth. Now I'll feel value. You say, no, no, no. I'm in Jesus Christ. He's my life. He's my worth. He's my value. And yet at the same time, on the one hand, you're in Christ. On the other hand, in a sense, you disappear. Another sense, of course, you are living this life, but now out of a sense of gratitude and joy for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Gospel changes the motivational structures of your heart. It changes your personal identity. It changes your social identity. The gospel changes everything. Do you understand the power of this? Do you know why Redeemer, more than anything else, wants not just to make more people in this city more moral and more religious, more like us? What we want to do is we want to expose them to this life-changing power, tens of thousands more. We want them to have the same joy. We also want them to have the kind of change in attitude toward other races, change in attitude toward your wealth, change in attitude toward the poor, change in attitude toward yourself that comes with it. This is our passion. This is our motivation. And in the past, when this penny has dropped, when this coin has dropped, when you've broken through from one order to the other order and everything changes, when that begins, you can have real, real history-changing movements you know, the, uh, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and their friends were a group of people that were sneeringly called, when they were at Oxford, they were sneeringly called the Methodists. This was back in the 18th century. They were called the Methodists because they were very religious, but they were also very legalistic, very methodical. You know, they, they, you know, they went to church how many times a day, and they read their Bible, and they prayed, and they met together all the time. And they were very religious, but they were also, like most people like that, really, really unpleasant. (laughs) But they began reading Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians. In fact, they began to read especially his preface, which you can find online. And one by one, they started to break through. They started to break through from one order to the other order. One by one, they started to actually get converted. They didn't know they needed to be converted. They thought, hey, we're Christians. My goodness, we believe in Jesus Christ and we're doing all this stuff and maybe God will take us to heaven. They didn't realize they hadn't understood the gospel. But one by one, they began to change and Methodism, of course, became one of a a real history-changing, world-changing phenomenon, as you know. But here's here's what happened to just one of them. Uh, One night, they were reading this together and a guy named, his name was William Holland. He was one of their friends. And he says that one night, Mr. Charles Wesley was reading the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians aloud. And when I heard these words, now these are Luther's words, at these words, quote, what, have we then nothing to do? No, nothing. But only accept Christ who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Only accept that Christ is made to us 
wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And he says, at those words, there came a power over me as I cannot well describe. He got it. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love, I burst into tears. My companions, perceiving me to be so affected, fell on their knees and prayed for me. When afterwards I went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. Later, of course, Charles Wesley understood and wrote this song that we sing often. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That can be the background music to your life. And that will change you. That'll make you a new person. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, ask that you'd help us to know the best way to uh, not only work the gospel into every part of our life broadly, but how to work the gospel into the deepest depths of our life profoundly, and then to proclaim this gospel to the city so other people can know the life-transforming power of it. Help us to do that in a way that is, that is in line with the gospel, graciously, humbly, respectfully, gently, and filled with gifts for people whether they believe as we do or not. Let us proclaim the gospel in line with the gospel, not in a harsh and condescending way. Make us a church, make us churches like that in this city who do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866-8999 866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. In our last broadcast, we studied Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, where he instructed us not to worry. When we look at the scriptures in chapter 6, there were three things that the Jewish people were devoted to, salvation, prayer, and fasting. Jesus told them not to collect treasures for themselves in this world, but to store them up in heaven. He told them that you cannot serve God in money. Jesus also said, Those who serve God should not worry about where they live and what they eat. They should not worry about tomorrow, but seek his kingdom first. Up to this point, we concluded our lessons for Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6. We now only have chapter 7 left to study. We will begin with the first part of chapter 7, where Jesus teaches us about not judging others. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Judging others is a spiritual conflict that many Christians face. Whatever the reason might be, Many of us have been in a situation where we found something wrong with another person, judged them accordingly, and then became troubled by our thoughts. Jesus teaches us about judging others and that if we do not want to be judged by God, then we shouldn't judge others. This doesn't mean to accept everything because the Bible states that we should know the difference between good and evil to know the difference between the spirit of God and the spirit of evil. It says to use fair judgment and know the difference between judging and differentiating. 
In verse 6, it says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine. This means we have to differentiate who are the dogs and who are the pigs. Therefore, Jesus did not tell us to not differentiate between evil spirits and right and wrong, but to not be the judge of someone else and to throw down your own judgment upon them. Only God who sees our hearts can judge us. And if anyone should judge someone else, it means that they want to be seated in God's seat. Romans chapter 14 verse 10 states, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. When we judge our brothers and sisters, it means that we will receive the same judgment from God. So we should not judge anyone. The person who judges is not looking at the log in their own eyes, but only looking at the speck in their brother's eye. A log is something that can hold up an entire house. So when you compare the two, there's a big difference between a log and a speck. Jesus says in verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? This means that you yourself have big faults, but you are trying to judge and fix someone else's little faults and not doing anything in correcting your own faults. He calls these people hypocrites. Remember, when Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites and told his followers to not associate with them, in the book of Luke, Jesus says that these Pharisees are those who think of themselves as righteous, but they are actually contemptible. Similarly, those who judge their own brothers and sisters are those who think that they are more righteous than anyone else. When they judge someone else's fault, it means that they think that they are righteous. They do not realize that they have bigger faults. Jesus tells those people to take the log out of their own eye first to correct their own faults, then, when they take the log out of their own eyes, then they will see the light to take someone else's speck. Jesus is not telling us to leave our brother's faults alone. He means that as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we should forgive one another and help each other through prayer to stand righteously before God. Those who realize their own faults would not judge another. Those who were forgiven by God for their own faults through God's love will humbly try to uphold others to live righteous lives in front of God. Jesus told us not to appoint ourselves as judge and to not stand next to those who are hypocrites. We need to be in a place where we love our brothers and sisters and humble ourselves before them. After Jesus warns us about judging others in verse 6, he states, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And just like now, at the time pearls were considered very valuable. However, it is only valuable to those who know what they are worth. If you throw something of value like pearls to pigs, they do not know the value of it and will only think about eating and trampling the pearls. Because they cannot eat them, they will just rip apart the person who gave that to them. It means that there are also those who trample and attack people even though they are given something valuable. It is better to keep your distance from them. 
In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus instructs the twelve disciples as he is sending them off to the villages to spread the gospel. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Even Apostle Paul, when he had set off on his missionary journey, said to the Jewish people who were attacking him, he shook out his garment and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left. When we speak the message of the gospel, if they do not accept the message, then just walk away from them. Those who listen to it with an attitude of opposition have no regard for the gospel and they will trample on it and then rip us apart. Today, we discussed Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, about not judging others. We looked at Jesus' message from the Sermon on the Mount about not giving something precious to dogs. In our next broadcast, we will look at his message on Ask, and it will be given to you. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made I see the stars I hear the rolling thunder Thy power throughout the universe displayed Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee How great Thou art, how great Thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee How great Thou art, how great Thou art When through the world And forest glades I wander And hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees When I look down From lofty mountain grandeur And hear the brook And feel the gentle breeze Then sings my soul my Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art That God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. 
on a cross My burdens gladly bearing He bled and died To take away my sin Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. And when Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation, and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart Then I shall bow In humble adoration And there proclaim My God, how great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art how great thou art how great John chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And then it continues to tell us something important in the next verse. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. If we have God's love inside of us, then we will not merely just say that we love our brothers, but will show the truth through our actions. Our actions will show that we truly love our brothers and that we belong to the truth. That way, we will be confident that we belong to God when we stand before Him. But, what would happen in an opposite situation? What if we did not help out our brothers in need and said we love them only with our mouth? What if the love did not show through our actions? The Bible does not have a middle ground. When you become a child of God, your characteristics are distinct. And it is also the same for the characteristics of non-believers. Reading the verses in 1 John hit me really hard this week and made me look back at my life in just the last week. I was embarrassed by how I acted to some of my brothers that were in need. I went around pronouncing that I loved all my brothers, but when they needed help, I pretended not to know them 
or the situation they were in. I lived my life ignoring their problems and concentrated only on fulfilling my needs. The second commandment that Jesus told all of us to obey is not simply just a feeling that we have for others. It is not enough that we just say that we love our brothers. To love our brothers means that we show them with our actions and fill their needs. Do all of you love your neighbors that God has provided for you? Do any of you have people around you that need help? What is it that they need? Do they need understanding? Maybe just help from a friend? Or maybe they need help to fight depression. Is there anyone living alone or that is sick that needs your help? Are you filling their needs and showing true love to your brothers in need? 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 say, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us. By the Spirit whom He has given us. We keep God's commandments by following His command to love one another. When we follow God's commandments, we live in God and God lives inside of us. I hope that all of you spend the next week asking yourselves where you are in your lives and if you belong to God and God lives inside of you. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope all of you have a wonderful week, and God bless.